Welcome to Breaking Green Ceilings, the podcast that amplifies the diverse voices of those who are committed to protecting and sustainably managing our natural environment. I'm your host, Sapna Mulki. Let's get started. Having Dr. Ingrid Waldron on the podcast is a dream come true. I remember listening to her interview on a podcast back in August 2019, and I said to myself, one day I am going to ask her to be on Breaking Green Ceilings. That day has come, and she accepted. I was nervous and excited to speak with Ingrid because she's a celebrity in my eyes. She wrote an excellent book titled There's Something in the Water, and as a water nerd, this totally resonated with me. Her book also got the attention of many, including actress Ellen Page, who eventually co-produced a documentary with the same title. The documentary is available on Netflix as of March 27th and is an absolute must watch. I love Ingrid's book because it is one more piece of evidence that connects environmental racism to degrading health, socioeconomic and political status of racialized communities. In this case, the African and indigenous communities in Nova Scotia, Canada. Other topics we discuss include gender, racial and spatial violence and white settler colonialism as it relates to environmental racism. I highly recommend you read the book because she goes into such beautiful detail on these topics which created many watershed moments for me. I especially admire Ingrid for her ability to use community-based research methods to include the African and Indigenous communities and then translate their findings in such a way that it moves people to action and create policy change. As a researcher, this is always top of mind for me. Finally, we talk about what was like working with Ellen Page and Ian Daniels to create a documentary that preserved and amplified the spirit, voices and dignity of communities that have been purposely ignored for centuries. Watch the documentary on Netflix and read the book, please. It's really a game-changing book from my perspective and it'll really change something in you, I'm sure. So, all right, let's get into it. Tell us about the journey what was the journey you had before you found yourself working on environmental racism and what brought you to this point? It started in the spring of 2012 when an environmental activist here in Nova Scotia approached me about taking on the project. I was, I was doing a different project at the time and I was you know, happy to continue with that. But he, he came to my office and he said that somebody suggested that he meet with me and he wanted to talk about a project on environmental racism. and like a lot of people at that time here in Nova Scotia, I didn't know what it was. And I asked him what it was. He was very surprised that I didn't know what it was, I guess, because I was a health researcher. And mm-hmm. if racism is a health issue. And he was surprised I, didn't, I had never heard of it. So when he explained it to me, I guess my first reaction was, it's interesting, but I don't know if I have the right degree to do it. You know, I felt that you needed to have an environmental science degree, and I didn't. What I guess intrigued me was the opportunity to to look at the health impacts. And what also intrigued me were the communities that were impacted. I was doing work on African Nova Scotian communities. I was doing work on indigenous communities. And I thought, okay, well, I'm interested in those issues. The environmental part of it, I don't know anything about it. But I felt that the project was a challenge. I felt that there was something, I guess, controversial about it. It was political. 
it was something new, it was a challenge. And I think those things intrigued me. So I very hesitantly said yes to him. Mm-hmm. And I had to do a lot of work in terms of just leading on the topic. But really, the first step really was to develop a relationship with the communities. I felt at that time that it needed to be community-based research. I didn't know a lot about community-based research at that time, but I did know that when you're working with minoritized communities, that's the best approach. So I decided that I needed to actually develop relationships and get to know the communities. I didn't know either community very well. African Nova Scotian community, I had made some inroads because of my project. And the Indigenous communities, I had made some, developed some relationships based on the project I was doing on gentrification in the part of Halifax called the North End. But I knew that environmental racism was across the province and I didn't have those relationships. So I decided that I needed to do a series of workshops to get to know the communities, to ask them questions about their priorities around environmental racism. I didn't want to come at it from the perspective of what my priorities were, but hearing from them, because they may actually say to me, oh, we don't want research on this topic. We're not interested. So I needed to hear from them whether or not they wanted this this project to go ahead. Right. So the project started in 2012, but in 2013 and 2014, a few members of my team drove down to the communities and we did those regional workshops and we got to know the communities. It was a great way to kind of get a sense of their priorities and what they thought the research objective should be. And then in 2014, in January, I held a final convergence workshop. It was an opportunity to get all the communities together, the Black community with the Indigenous community, which actually rarely happens in this province. And I got them both together at a workshop in Halifax. And then my project proceeded from there. The workshop was documented in a report that I did. And I sent that report to government officials. I sent it to other key people. And basically, I was kind of waiting to see, okay, what's going to happen now? What should my next step be? Right. How did you go about choosing the communities? What were the factors? Yeah, that was difficult. But, you know, my initial thought was the communities that I'm going to start with should be the communities where members of my team already had relationships, because that was a really hard one from the beginning. It's like, which communities should we be focusing on? Obviously, it had to be communities that have concerns about environmental issues. Not every community does. But I thought the easiest way to start to build those relationships was to get a sense from my team members, some of whom are from affected communities, and kind of ask them, you know, which communities have you developed relationships with? Do you think there's a possibility for us to kind of enter those communities through the relationship that you have? Because I don't have those relationships, but you do. And obviously, they need to feel a sense of trust. And since you have those relationships, can we use the relationship that you have to get in there? So that's the way we did it. So the communities that we connected with at first were two Indigenous communities and three African Nova Scotian communities based on the relationships team members already had. Mm -hmm. And so why environmental racism and what makes it unique to the African Nova Scotian communities as well as Indigenous communities? As I said, I didn't know a lot about it, but I remember a conversation I had after a conference here in Halifax in 2009, like three years before I began the project. I remember walking from the conference with a woman this is a white woman. And she said, for some reason, Ingrid, the Black community here 
seems to die of cancer. Mm. And I thought that was strange. I remember asking her why. It's a long time ago. I don't remember what her response was, but I remember her not really answering. Like it didn't seem like she understood what the causal factors were. And I didn't think much of it at that time. And of course, my project started three years later. But when I started the project and when that environmental activist came to me to ask me to take it on, I I then remembered that conversation because I thought that conversation was stunning. (laughs) It actually scared me because I thought, okay, does that mean I'm going to eventually get cancer if I Mm. stay in Nova Scotia? That's the way she said it. It was like, eventually they all get cancer. And I'm like, okay, I'm not an African Nova Scotian, but I'm a black person. I'm now living. I've moved from Toronto to Halifax. Does that mean I'm going to then get cancer? So. I think, yeah, I mean, I was it's just... quite a bold uh, statement for her to make. <laughs> is the way she said it. She said it with a lot of authority, but right. it was kind of a statement. So I think part of the reason I felt that this was an important topic is because, like many of us, cancer scares us. Just that word mm-hmm. scares us. And I thought if that is the significant kind of health issue in the African Nova Scotian community. And I know from my readings, it also is a significant issue in Indigenous communities across Canada then I want to focus on this particular issue. Right. So I would say that's the main reason, but I also felt that I can address it through more community-based interventions. I felt with this project that it would be like no other project, that this is not the kind of project that would sit on a shelf. And I felt that with, although I didn't have experience in community-based research, I'd been part of a lot of community justice organizations in Toronto. And never mm-hmm. feeling that I could use that to make any changes. I was always on these committees, you know, right. these social justice committees, but never feeling that I was doing anything. And I thought, okay, well, I have that passion for justice. I've sat on a lot of committees and advocacy boards and not feeling that I did anything special with that, with those opportunities. How can I now incorporate that knowledge and expertise into research and really do something that is going to address the issue. So I saw all of those opportunities with my project. Mm -hmm. So that's something that we definitely want to talk a little bit more about is how to make your research more tangible and kind of create the change in reality that we're trying to have. But I think it's also important to just track back a little bit and not just assume that everyone knows what environmental racism is. And so Could you briefly tell us what environmental racism is and kind of what it looks like in Nova Scotia in terms of how you described it in your book? Environmental racism is a term that was coined in the United States in the mid-1980s by Reverend Benjamin Chavez. And it can be defined as the disproportionate location or siting of polluting industries and other environmentally hazardous projects in primarily indigenous communities, black communities, and other communities of color. That's the standard definition. It's about disproportionality. Mm -hmm. The fact that policies lead to the disproportionate siting of toxic waste sites and other projects in these communities. The way it looks in Nova Scotia is that it is the case that in Indigenous communities and Black communities, historical Black communities, historical African Nova Scotian communities, that they tend to be near to these waste sites. Now, I actually had a student create a map for my project, 
that actually shows this. So people might want to dispute it, mm-hmm. but this map actually shows that a Black and Indigenous communities are closer to these waste sites. On my website, you will find the map, and the map has two layers, one for Indigenous communities and one for Black communities. And it looks specifically at pulp and paper mills, incinerators, and waste dumps. And you can look at that map and see that indeed these communities are closer to those websites. Now, the map also does not argue that white communities are not near these waste sites. Some are, Mm -hmm. but they're primarily located in Black and Indigenous communities. So the definition I provided to you earlier about environmental racism is certainly the case in Nova Scotia Mm -hmm. and other parts of Canada, of course. I would say I'm primarily in Indigenous communities. So when we go beyond Nova Scotia and we look at Canada, it disproportionately impacts Indigenous communities, certainly more than Black communities. I would say for some reason, it's African Nova Scotian communities here in Nova Scotia, not Black communities in other parts of Canada that are disproportionately impacted. Why that would be, I think it has something to do with the fact that we have, that Nova Scotia tends to be more rural, has more rural areas than other parts of Canada and that you have a Black rural community in a way that you don't in other parts of Canada. In Toronto, Mm -hmm. you have Black communities that gravitate towards urban centres, of course, because they're looking for jobs. They're primarily immigrant communities. But in Nova Scotia, what's unique about the Black community is that they're mostly in rural areas, and we call that historical Black communities. So they're out of the way in many ways and invisible that kind of rural living actually compounds some of the problems that they experience. Indigenous communities on reserves, similarly, that kind of of out-of-the-way nature of some of those communities often results in government forgetting about these communities or just a general tendency to discriminate, I would say, against communities that are rural, whether or not they're white communities or communities of color. We tend to discriminate against rural communities. They have less access to services. Right. They often talk about not having sidewalks or green space mm-hmm. or enough medical services or health services. And then you put race on top of that and you put low income or poverty on top of that. And that intersection actually is pretty dangerous when we think about the communities that tend to be picked or selected for a waste dump or a landfill or a paper mill, for example. Mm -hmm. So yeah, there's certainly no doubt that environmental racism is a thing in Nova Scotia and in other parts of Canada. Yeah. You know, within your book, the way you break down your, your objectives in terms of intersectionality, could you describe that to us a little bit more? Yeah, I think it's important when we talk about anything whether it's health or social, economic, political issues, it's really important to have an intersectional analysis because an intersectional analysis allows us to think through sometimes very specific and unique ways in which different population groups experience their lives, experience their political lives, their economic lives, and their social lives. And it's, it's key in understanding mm-hmm. how environmental racism operates. So with environmental racism, it's typically those who are racialized, those who are low income. I would add to that those who are living in rural areas or out of the way areas that are disproportionately impacted. So that intersection of race, 
and socioeconomic status and social class is key. But I would also add gender to that. Right. Something that I didn't really see early on, I would say, because I was new to the project, but I see it very clearly now that you also need to look at the intersection of race and social class and rural living and gender. And why is that? That's because the pathways through which women and men are impacted by the health impacts of environmental racism is very much gendered. For example, women and men can be found or located in very unique and specific ways in the labor market, in the domestic sphere. Consequently, they're going to be exposed to pollutants or toxic burdens in in different ways. So I think, for example, of Halifax, but you can look at the United States. Women are disproportionately located in jobs where they are responsible for domestic services or cleaning. Mm -hmm. I think of hospitals to some extent, and I think of hotels, right? Who's cleaning your hotel room? It's typically racialized women, immigrant women, people who are low income. Right. And they're going to be disproportionately impacted by pollutants based on their work, the kinds of contaminants they're exposed to in a very unique way. Men, for example, who tend to be located in manual labor work or working outdoors are going to be exposed to different types of pollutants. So when we look at the gendered pathways through which people are exposed to environmental pollutants and contaminants, We need to look at the spaces where they're located, in the workplace, outdoors, socially, and in the home. So I think that's very important when we're looking at environmental racism. But I also think the other aspect of that intersection of race, class, socioeconomic status, and gender is also who is actually on the front lines of environmental justice organizing. And over the past eight years, just looking at this issue through my project, I note that it is women. It's indigenous and black women who are on the front lines. And at one point I was like, where are the men? You know, I was Mm -hmm. was very kind of frustrated or angry. I was like, where are the men? Why are the women doing all the work? And what's the cost emotionally and psychologically to these women? And an indigenous woman responded to me. And now I understand why it's the women primarily. She said, Ingrid, this is part of our culture. This is part of indigenous culture. We are responsible for protecting the land and for protecting the water. We are the life givers. Right. And because we are the life givers, as Indigenous women, it is our duty. This was handed to us. We are responsible for protecting the land and the water. So I do understand in terms of the Indigenous culture that this is cultural and this is their responsibility and how it's viewed. Right. But still, somebody who's a researcher and likes to look at also the psychological impacts of environmental racism, I also wonder what's the cost psychologically and emotionally to women who are constantly and persistently fighting against this issue and in many cases for decades. Right. So an intersectional analysis to me is really important because it allows us to think through all of these issues. Right. It makes me think of how everything is connected, really, and that you can't think of one issue separate from the other, sort of like a a trickle-down effect, if I can say that. So there's one thing that kind of caught my attention as I was reading your book, which is 
quite excellent. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Finally got it. <laughs> There's a part where you're talking about spatial violence and how you can't talk about racial theory without talking about spatial theory. And I was wondering if you could explain that a little bit more. And I just want to make sure that I understood it <laughs> correctly. Yeah. That came into play in my work a little later on after reading some work by primarily American scholars, particularly Dr. George Lipschitz mm-hmm. at the University of California, Santa Barbara. He's in the Black Studies Department. And I read an article that he wrote called The Spatialization of Race, and I was blown away. Right. Because I thought, oh, this is a missing piece. There's also Cheryl Tiluxing at Ryerson University in Toronto here in Canada, who also wrote, I believe, a book or edited a book way back in perhaps 2005, also talking about space. So I started, as I moved kind of beyond environmental racism and I wanted to find interesting theories to anchor the work in, I started to see a lot of work on space and race and the spatialization of race. And I thought, this is fascinating. This allows me actually to contextualize environmental racism in broader issues. Mm -hmm. So space allows us to think through how environmental racism manifests, but it also allows us to think through how various other inequalities manifest. It allows us to engage in a discussion about criminal justice, although it seems that it has absolutely nothing to do with environmental racism. It allows us to think through criminal justice and the inequalities in the criminal justice system, the inequalities around employment, gentrification, and the inequalities in housing. What a spatial analysis allows us to do is to understand that environmental racism could never be understood in isolation from all of the other social inequalities that these same communities are experiencing. So as you said before, you said everything is connected. That's what it allows us to do, to understand that environmental racism can't happen unless we understand how the communities that I'm working with are already being impacted by historical, longstanding social inequalities in employment and low income, because it is precisely the fact that they're low income, it's precisely the fact that they're living in out-of-the-way places, It's precisely because they're unemployed in some cases or underemployed that government can put, for example, a landfill in their community. When you have communities that are already dealing with other social ills, they are existing in communities that are destabilized in some way. They're destabilized because of food insecurity. They're destabilized because they're dealing with low income and poverty. They're destabilized because they have higher rates of incarceration. It's much easier to put a landfill in a community that's dealing with so many different social ills because that community is distracted in many ways by trying to address all of those social ills. And in a way, they're weakened. I hate to say weakened because those are strong communities, but in a way, the fabric of those communities are not as strong because they're dealing with so many intersecting issues. A spatial analysis allows us to understand that, that environmental racism doesn't manifest. It's not generated in isolation from the host of other social ills that these communities are dealing with. It's allowed to flourish and it regenerates over time 
because those other social ills continue and they persist. Right. So when I talk about spatial violence, we all know what violence is in terms of interpersonal violence. So of course, I'm not talking about intimate partner violence or domestic abuse. I'm talking about the violence of the state, right? And it allows us to look at the state, the government as the source of the problem. So the government is the source of the problem, but when the government creates policies like environmental policies or policies around criminal justice or policies around income or employment, those policies then impact people on the ground. And the people that they harm the most are those people who are already dealing with pre-existing vulnerabilities like low income. So when you create a policy, an environmental policy that allows or enables a landfill or different waste sites to be put primarily in communities that are already dealing with other social ills, I say that's violent. I say mm-hmm. that's a form of violence through the policy. So I'm hoping that captures, I guess I'm trying to get across in the book and how I see environmental racism, the need to contextualize it, I guess I would say, within a broader framework. Yeah, that makes sense. And when I was reading about spatial theory and how you were describing it in the context of environmental justice, it was just kind of mind-blowing <laughs> that I was like, oh my gosh, yes, it's pervasive and it's in like every space. So I think that's how then I was starting to create sort of like a link map of factors and causes. And it was, you know, at first it started And it was kind of like a progression of how you wrote the book is I first started my little mind map with environmental racism, which is connected to health disparities and racism and spatial violence and herbicide. And and then later on, you progress to start talking about white settler colonialism. And for Mm -hmm. me, then it really hit home from like a spatial theory aspect is like this is, you know, a group of people that came in and basically took over a space. And for me, the way I saw it, how I kind of concluded that conversation is everything kind of stems from white settler colonialism and what you describe as white innocence. Yes. And so we know that because of colonialism, it has kind of created the the disparities in access to resources. And it's kind of created at the same time what you describe as uh, white privilege. And that kind of prevents us or majority white communities from seeing how their privilege does really impact the livelihoods of those minoritized or racialized communities. And unless the white person is willing to learn about these injustices, it's only when they're more likely to be activated to make change. So then comes sort of this long age question that I have around talking about issues of environmental racism to a white culture. How do you talk about it without making people feel like they're being personally attacked? I just want to add one more thing is I'm seeing us using this word injustice to replace the word racism. Mm -hmm. And I'd like to know what your thoughts are on that as well. So with the justice, that's a term that's used a lot in Canada around the issue of the environment. And when I started this project, it was all about environmental justice. Every single environmental NGO or anyone working on this issue would talk about environmental justice. 
And as I started to write the book, I said, well, you know, we need to figure out what the causal factors are before we talk about the justice, because the justice is the end point. We want to get to justice. Mm-hmm. But it's similar. I always say this to people when I try to distinguish between environmental racism and environmental justice. I think an easy way to kind of understand it is to say, when you go to your doctor and you're ill, you don't want him to prescribe anything until you know what the diagnosis is. You want him to give you a diagnosis and to tell you what your illness is and what has caused that illness before you want to know about the treatment before you want him to prescribe medication. You want to know everything about that condition and that illness. You want the diagnosis. So in a similar way with environmental racism, as you can see from the book, I provide a lot of causal factors for environmental racism. You can't figure out how to treat environmental racism or address it or solve it until you figure out what the causal factors are, because then you may be way off. If you don't know what the causal factors are, your treatment the environmental justice apparatus that you want to use to address it might be way off, might be inaccurate, may be inappropriate. So I was starting to say to myself, you know, the ENGOs that I was affiliating myself with, there seemed to be this use of environmental justice. But I also think it's also about a fear of naming it racism. It's much more comfortable to say justice. They're using that term because, yes, they're recognizing that there may be inequalities, but there's a general fear in Canada, unlike in the U.S., just to talk about racism because we think we don't have it here because it's subtle. So I would say that about environmental racism and environmental justice in terms of the importance of distinguishing between the two and not being afraid to name it. Racism is about disproportionality. So if a community, indigenous community, black community are more likely to be near a particular hazardous site, then you have to ask why that is. If it's racism, then it's racism. We have to uncover it. But why is there disproportionality with respect to some communities around this particular issue? Similar to health disparities, you know, if black and indigenous communities are more likely to suffer from respiratory illness and diabetes, which is the case in the United States and in Canada, then we have to question why. In terms of how do you talk about this project without offending people, you have to back it up and you have to talk about it in a way that's discussing the subtleties of it. I think people are much more apt to talk about racism in terms of direct forms of racism, racism that they can see. But you have to paint a picture for, for them to understand systemic racism by using examples from other sectors, whether it's the education system and employment and labor and how discrimination within those sectors can also be subtle and often result in poor outcomes for minoritized communities like low educational achievement or high dropout rates. And some people will say, oh, it's because it's their fault. It has nothing to do with the system. These are people who just need to pull up their bootstraps. Certainly there's that individual blaming of people. But the way I've done this is to use the data, first of all. You know, people are, some people are very interested in data and stats, but also to paint a picture of the ways in which discrimination and inequality weaves itself into our structures and systems in a way that we can't see it Mm -hmm. with the eyes, but then results in particular outcomes for for individuals. And the way that I also did that in the book is to connect it back to our colonial history in Canada. How did we get here? If we're talking about the fact that we have inequalities around the environment or around education, et cetera, how did that happen? 
And then I also asked the question, why are these communities poor? You know, so some people would say, yes, but they're poor communities, Ingrid. You're talking about class. You're not talking about race. I got that early on in my yeah. life. This is about class, Ingrid. This is not about race. But you can't separate class from race, right? Not yes. intersectional analysis. So then I would say to those individuals, okay, if it's about class and socioeconomic status and poverty, why are these particular communities still the poorest communities in Canada? Right. And I got to keep taking them back to our colonial history. Right. Right. And then we talk about slavery in Canada, which some people don't even know existed. And I, we talk about the indigenous colonial history and how the policies, the colonial policies still reverberate today in present day Canada. That mm-hmm. the policies meted out to indigenous people continue to inform present day contemporary policies. I talk about how slavery in Canada continues to inform how we view Black people in Canada and the policies that exist or don't exist to address issues in Black life in Canada. Right. So it's a kind of taking people back to our history and having them understand that where we are today is always about the past. One of the things I was saying a lot when I started the project was the past is the present. You know, because some people would say, Ingrid, that's the past. Why are you talking about the past? <laughs> and I would say, I just think it matters. And I would say, actually, the past is the present. Yes. <laughs> and yes. that's all I need to say. <laughs> yeah. Forgive my ignorance here, but it's just what media portrays is that Canada is doing oh. everything right better oh. than the U.S. <laughs> and they love that image here. Yeah, <laughs> you're just like, they're far more progressive than us. And, you know, the like the documentary showed. In some ways, yes. You know, we had legalized gay marriage in 2005. And I guess you guys did it under Obama. And yeah. I forgot when that was. So, and we legalized marijuana before the United States. We have a healthcare system that was considered to be much more progressive. I still prefer our healthcare system than the U.S. system, but our healthcare system has worsened over the past few years. We know that. So, on those things, on social issues, yes, in many ways we are progressive, but it doesn't necessarily mean that uh, we don't have racism. True, true. And, you know, again, just reading a section in your book where you are talking about the history of slavery in Nova Scotia, that was eye-opening for me, and especially the part where you describe how the African-American communities were taken from Jamaica and then they were sent to West Africa. It's like, who gives them the right to do that? I don't know, my blood was boiling at that time. (laughs) And then I also learned from the documentary, but also in your book, you talk about the residential schools. And we had that here in the U.S. I had no idea that happened to the indigenous community and just like complete erasure of their culture. And they're wow. So that was really, I was like, they're not that much different from us. Ha ha ha. This idea of like implicit and overt racism is also something that exists very much here in the United States. And that's the thing with environmental racism is you have to put a little bit more effort into explaining how implicit it is. Just going back to what you were saying around making the comparison between race and class Mm -hmm. or how they're very much connected. Mm -hmm. So, you know, one of the things that you were talking about earlier on in the conversation is about how you decided to use community-based research methods. Tell us a little bit about what that is and why you decided to choose that method, 
as a way to help empower the indigenous and African Nova Scotian communities that you were working with? Yeah, as I said, I had never learned this research approach. I had heard about it, but never really understood how it plays out. But I, I did feel that it's an approach that needed to be used and that the communities needed to drive the research. So community-based research methods originated with health research, actually. Health research, perhaps more than a lot of other types of disciplines, is focused on interventions and making sure that the research you do has impacts on the ground in a way that other disciplines perhaps don't consider. So it came out of health research, and I am a health researcher, so I knew that I needed to use that approach. That approach allows communities to drive the research. Typical research would be a professor deciding what the research questions should be to drive the research and what the research objectives should be. And that's completely valid, depending on the type of research that you're doing. But I felt that if I really wanted to engage communities, I needed to hear from them about what they considered to be their priorities and how they would like the research to roll out and what they Mm -hmm. thought the overriding research questions should be and what they thought the research objective should be, which is why I organized those workshops I discussed early on in the communities. That was an opportunity to hear from them. So with community-based research, it's always partnered research. It's not you as a professor going solo, making all the decisions and asking the community, is this okay with you? No, it's the community saying, this is what I want to see. These are the research methods that I think might be best. And it's completely partnered research throughout the research. You don't bring the community in halfway in, halfway into the research. Maybe you've done the research, it started a year ago, and now you decided to bring the community in. No, the community is a partner from the get-go. In fact, sometimes even before you put in the ethics proposal to the committee to find out whether or not your research is ethical, you should be making connections, engaging with and identifying partners with the community that you're focused on even before the research begins, not when the research begins and not after Mm -hmm. the research begins. This allows the community to feel like they are respected, that they are true partners, and that they're going to have a say in every single aspect of this study from the get-go, from when the questions are designed to the final stage of the research, when you're deciding, okay, how do I share the results of my research? What's the best approach? Is it Twitter? Is it Facebook? Is it a community meeting? Is it a town hall? All the decisions about the research and how you're going to share it when the research ends, you should be making in partnership with the community. So that is actually what community-based research is. And I'm hoping that people can understand how important it was for me to use that research project with these communities, because these are communities that are always sharing their perspectives on professors who come into their communities, take from them, and never return. And nothing ever gets better. And I said to myself, nope, I feel I have too much integrity to do that when these are communities dealing with serious environmental issues for me to come in, to take data and do nothing and never return is not how I see myself and certainly not how I want this research to go. So that's why it's really important with Black communities, Indigenous communities and other communities of color that you tread lightly and that you make sure that the methods that you're using are considering 
community needs and community priorities at, at every step. Because if you mess up, if you make a mistake, if you make a misstep, sometimes it's extremely difficult to get back into that community. These communities have felt burnt over time. And it's very mm-hmm. difficult to get their trust in the first place. But to get the trust back is even more difficult. Yep. And again, just going back to a part in your book, you worked primarily with the Mi'kmaq community, but there was also, I believe it was the Eskasoni, if I'm saying that correctly, yes, community who you reached out to initially, but they said that they had been burned too many times by other researchers. And so they decided to kind of opt out of the Enrich project. But later on, when they saw the difference or the impact that you were making by working with the Black Nova Scotian and the Mi'kmaq community, they decided to kind of hear you out in terms of what change you were trying to impact. That was actually Pictou Landing First Nation. Mm, okay. Not, yeah, not Estesonia. Pictou Landing First Nation was a challenge, yes. Yes. <laughs> and they're the ones who are featured in, in the documentary as one of the kind of case studies. I finally was able to connect. I mean, yeah. I, I put that part in the book because I really wanted readers to understand how challenging community-based research is and the importance of really developing authentic relationships. I wanted to actually show readers that everything hasn't been easy for me Mm -hmm. in this project. And that was actually really challenging early on. I wanted to make a connection with that community. I wanted to develop partnerships, but I also knew the community, a lot of professors at my institution at Dalhousie had already started research in that community. And Yeah, the person in the community said to me, you know what, there's so much research going on in our community. We've got a lot of Dalhousie professors coming up here Mm. doing research. We just really, and she was, you know, I understood it actually because they were burnt out. She said, we really can't have another survey. You know, we just can't do it. I was disappointed, but I definitely understood. But I also recognized that I hadn't even built a relationship with that community. Why would they want me to come in? They didn't know me. Right. So I think it's a really telling kind of section of that chapter. Food for thought, I guess, for researchers who think that they should just be able to go into a community without considering some of the things that I highlighted. Yeah. No, I think that is such a critical point and it just happens over and over again where researchers or anthropologists, archaeologists, whatever, will come in with an extractive type of mindset and never give back to the community what they found mm-hmm. or try to empower them to help them get out of a specific challenge. Mm-hmm. So I was really impressed that mm-hmm. you dedicated quite a bit of a discussion around how you were <laughs> rejected at first <laughs> and you were humble and you understood, yeah. you got it and you know you you didn't pursue and you let them come to you on their own terms. That's yes. very important. So the theme here is that you were able to use your research to empower the community with the tools and the resources that they need to express themselves and to be heard. And you've given us some advice on what researchers can do when approaching a community in terms of their research. What are the other ways in which you've used your research to help get the attention that you needed from the right people and created a desired change? And you kind of explained a little bit about that in the beginning when you said you were having specific conversations with policymakers, etc. I think one of the key ones would be legislation. Mm-hmm. 
while I don't put my eggs in one basket anymore in terms of thinking that legislation is the BN or what, how do you say it, is everything. I think yeah, I thought legislation was everything. I'm trying to address this issue from different approaches. I do think legislation or a bill or an act is key in addressing environmental racism in Nova Scotia and Canada. So what I did, I guess it was 2014, is I said to myself, okay, I need to connect with our MLAs, politicians, who are closely connected to communities, and particularly the communities that I'm focused on right now. And at the end of 2014, it was around Christmas. It was probably that week of Christmas. And I said, you know what, I'm just going to engage in this little project where I leave voicemail messages for several politicians, and then I'm going to follow up with an email, and I'm going to wait and see what happens. So that was my little project that week. And the first person who got back to me was Lenore Zan, who I talk about in the book, and she's an NDP. So NDP, if you think about your Democratic Party in the United States, the NDP would be similar, Mm. Uh, much more progressive, I would say. And she got back to me, born in Australia, but considers herself a Nova Scotian. And when I met with her for coffee, because she got back to me and she said, yeah, let's talk about it. She had never really heard of environmental racism. But when we sat down for coffee, she said, hmm. I remember when I was a little girl in Australia, it always seemed that the Aboriginal communities were next to dump. Is that what you're talking about, Ingrid? Is that environmental racism? I said, yeah, that's exactly it. She said, yeah, because I noticed that when I was a little girl. It's always the Aboriginal communities next to that dump. So she listened and she said, you know what? Why don't we develop a private member's bill? And I actually wasn't seeking her out to really develop policy. I just thought, okay, maybe a politician can help. So it kind of blew my mind. I thought, wow, the notion that we can create a bill would be exciting. And she said, yeah, we can create a bill. The bill may not pass. And I should let you know it probably will not pass because it's a private member's bill and they don't pass. But what it can do is bring a lot of publicity or attention to the issue. And we could hold a press conference after I introduce it in the legislature, in the Nova Scotia legislature. We can hold a press conference and just get the word out there, you know, just get the get people familiar with the term environmental racism. And I said, okay, that sounds great. And we did. We introduced the first environmental racism bill in Canada ever in 2015, April 29th, 2015. And it went to second reading in November of 2015. It never passed into law. But it was an opposition bill, meaning we have a liberal party in power. And NDP party, which is like our Democratic Party, is not in power. So it's not surprising that it didn't pass. But it did do what she said it would do. It brought some publicity to the issue of environmental racism in the media. And people started recognizing what it was and empathizing more with the issue. I have to say that, you know, the NDP party reintroduced that bill every year. So I'm very grateful. Every year up until 2018, it hasn't passed. But Lenore then switched over to the Liberal Party last year. And I had no idea she was still kind of persistent about reintroducing this bill. So I'm so grateful to her. Mm. Earlier this year, she said, Ingrid, you know that bill that we collaborated on? I just want to kind of make some changes to it. I'm going to edit it a bit. But now that I'm in the Liberal Party, which is in power. So now she has more power because she's with a party that has power. She said, I want to kind of change this bill a little bit, add a few things. Can you look it over? Tell me what you think. If you need to add something, let me know. 
And I did. That was in early February of this year. And she actually introduced the first ever federal bill, Canadian bill. So it's it's going beyond Nova Scotia, a federal bill on environmental racism that was introduced on February 26th. And of course, we're on a lockdown now in Canada because of the virus. But her plan is to get that bill to second reading. She's very hopeful because it's being done through the Liberal Party, but she's also got a lot of support from other people in Mm, her party. That's fantastic. Yeah, it's really great because it means that it's going to address not just environmental issues in Nova Scotia, but particularly with Indigenous communities across Canada. As I mentioned earlier, it's the Indigenous communities across Canada that are most impacted. So there's an opportunity there for legislation to have some impact. So for me, legislation is important to this particular issue. So I hope that that's going to work (laughs) to some extent, right? I also think you need community mobilizing. You need community testing of their water. You need to work with NGOs to engage in civil disobedience. I think civil disobedience is actually key. I think peaceful protests marches yeah all those things actually bring attention to an issue so yeah and there's there's a part i believe in in around the conclusion where you're talking about how you all had a very specific strategy on how to put pressure on the policymakers (laughs) through social media and letter writing and i think that's what then got their attention and they called you back yeah (laughs) and that's a really smart approach the other thing is you know you've gotten attention from policymakers which is one of the hardest things to do. But you also got the attention of the actor Ellen Page. And I just love how things like that happen when you don't expect them to. (laughs) At least when you're telling me that story. And so do you mind recounting it to our listeners? Well, it's a really mind-blowing story. But, you know, part of me thinks that it was just meant to be or it's something in the air or I don't know, because the way it all unfolded is still strange to me. But I'm on Twitter. I have two Twitter pages. And one morning, I would say it was, it was probably October of 2018. I woke up as I do and I went to my Twitter page and I noticed that it was extremely busy, more than usual. Mm. People talking about my book and I thought, oh, this is really strange. I should say be, before that happened, uh, maybe a, four weeks before that happened, I noticed somebody following me called Ellen Page, but I didn't think it was the actress because if you look at her, Twitter profile, it doesn't say actress. It Mm. says, I'm a tiny Canadian. And the photo photo that she's chosen to use is very, you can't even really see her face. I think she's got a a beret on Mm. and the color is sepia. So I didn't recognize her as the actress. So I thought, huh, I didn't think much of it. And four weeks later, that's when I noticed a lot of comments on my Twitter page talking about my book. So I said, well, what's going on here? Because this particular Twitter page is never really that active. And I traced it back up to the Ellen page that I noticed on my page four weeks earlier. And I said, hmm, can this be Ellen Page, the actress? You know, I, I immediately thought, okay, Juno, the movie that I saw, I guess, right. in 2007, I thought I, that was, I love that movie. I saw that movie, movie twice. <laughs> yeah. Certainly you don't see like dramas twice. You see Star Wars twice or 10 times. <laughs> You know, I saw that movie twice. And I said, this is a very fantastic actress. I felt, for me, she blew everybody away. She mm-hmm. was the senior seasoned actors, but to me, she blew everyone away. So I said, is it Ellen Page? And I realized it was. 
So I said, oh, the proper thing to do is to thank her. So I DM'd her. <laughs> and I said, I would really like to thank you for talking about my book and my project. Thanks very much. I'm really grateful. And she got back to me and she said, yeah, I just want to find a way to really use my celebrity and my platform to lift up this topic, to promote your book and to help these women on the front lines of environmental justice organizing. And she had a friend somebody by the name of Lil McPherson who owns a restaurant here called The Wooden Monkey. And Lil and I were on a committee together, an environmental justice committee. And somehow I got to talking with her and she said, Ingrid, I've known Ellen for like 15 years. Would you like me to connect you by phone? This is great that you two have connected by Twitter, but we can all have a talk about how she can help. So Mm. we did that uh, the week of Christmas 2018. And we had a three-way phone conversation that was really about us, you know, just talking about ideas, but we didn't come up with anything firm. And we were just, she was just saying, I want to help. And I'm thinking, I don't know how she can help because she doesn't live in Canada. So what could she possibly do? And I thought, well, her Twitter following is huge. You know, it's a million or two million and mine isn't. So I'm thinking social media is powerful because what if I tweet something out and she retweets it to her followers, Mm -hmm. then we're really going to get a lot of awareness. So that's initially what I thought. I thought that's how she can help. She can use her Twitter following. But I'm still frustrated at this point thinking, oh gosh, you know, I hear I got a celebrity and I need to think of other ideas, but I couldn't come up with anything. And I spent my Christmas really thinking about how can I utilize this person, an actress who's trying to help me. Mm-hmm. So we had another conversation in January 2019, now with the community members, with two Indigenous women from Indian Broca, Sabaganagani, one of the areas, the Indigenous communities I had engaged, Doreen Bernard and Michelle Paul, as well as Rebecca Moore. And it was the five of us on the phone now. And that's when we decided a film would be a great idea. Ellen brought that up. She said, what about if we did a short film? We were talking about 15-minute vignettes in a way, short clips that we can post on Twitter. Very Mm. informal, very rough, nothing big, nothing sophisticated. We were going to do some 15-minute clips just to kind of create awareness. And we all were so excited. Everybody was squealing on the phone. And it was like, finally, we, we came up with a great idea. Little did we know that this, these clips <laughs> would turn into a documentary. Once again, none of this was planned. So right. the fact that we went to the Toronto International Film Festival and that it's on Netflix now is crazy. We only started discussing a film, a 70-minute film, as after Ellen came, shot the film. We went back and looked at the clips of the film. And I looked at people in the film who were crying and giving their all. And it was emotional. And I said, you know what? Slapping this onto Twitter is not going to give these stories justice. So I said, why don't we go bigger? Why don't we have a full-length film. And Mm. the co-director, Ian Daniel, said, yeah, you know, maybe this is something that we should consider. And I I said, I said, and we need to think about the Toronto International Film Festival. This is the most prestigious, most important film festival. And he said, yeah, maybe we should. (laughs) Go big or go home. (laughs) Yeah, because he was like pulling back a bit. And I'm the kind of person like, as you just said, go big or go home. Because if we really want to impact this issue, if we really want to make a change, the more people who know about this issue beyond Nova Scotia, beyond Canada, 
then it's important that we show this film everywhere, that this film gets global attention. And the Toronto International Film Festival brings over people from all over the world. So for me, it's like, you have to go big. Why do it, right? Right. This would probably be in April of 2019. This whole idea of having a 70-minute film came to us. And even when we got into TIFF, that was shocking. We were We had a very rough film and we got accepted into the film festival with a very rough, very raw film. Mm. And then we got into the Atlantic Film Festival, which is a major film festival here in Nova Scotia. And then it kept rolling. And then we got into other film festivals in Canada. And then in October of last year, I knew that we were looking at a Netflix deal. I couldn't say anything at that point. I was told not to say anything, but it was October of last year. And I thought, Netflix, this is crazy. Crazy. So that's how it all happened. And it was, it debuted on Netflix on March 27th, 2020. And been getting a lot of great feedback from people on Facebook, from all over the world, actually, on Facebook and email and Twitter. It's been fabulous. Yeah. No, I think it's just amazing. As I was thinking about the timeline of when the book got released, when the research started, it just snowballed really fast in just a year and a half, really. And it's, it's quite impressive, but it came to this point because of all the hard work that you and your team and the communities did since 2014. So it's not like this came out of nowhere kind of thing, but also it did at the same time, I guess. And I think just what makes this, for me at least, really resonates with me is as an environmentalist that we think of environmental racism just mostly from a U.S. perspective. I don't know why I didn't think so much about it from outside of the U.S. And now I'm thinking about it even from like a global perspective and not necessarily when it doesn't necessarily have to be in a colonial lens, but just even looking at those who have power and privilege asserting or oppressing those who don't through limiting their access to a healthy natural environment. So I was just thinking of that in terms of like what's happening in India with indigenous communities and state sanctioned violence against them. For me, I would consider that a form of environmental racism, but I didn't think of it beyond just like what I've always thought of it as like white settler colonialism imposing Mm -hmm. like oppressing for centuries. But I think that's kind of what this book really opened up to me as well as the documentary. But it also gave me hope that there is value in re- like we can be smart and strategic about how we use our research to really create impactful change. So one of the things I was curious about is, yes, it's exciting when a celebrity comes to you and tells you that they want to kind of work with you to spread the, the information that you've shared in your book. How do you make sure that when you're collaborating with another entity that the spirit of the project, the enriched project is like stays intact and that it's not influenced by outside interests? How do you protect and enhance the message? That's a fantastic question. Yeah, I wanted to make sure that a documentary is based on my book. So I wanted, of course in some way for the documentary as much as is possible, because it is, you know, it's a film, 70 minute film, and it couldn't capture everything in my book, that there was the similar kind of community-based focus that I put into my research and my book, that if my research is community-based, then the film needs to be 
community focused and the voices of the communities needed to be at center stage. Now, that didn't mean that initially I didn't want other people to be in the film. And that was a discussion we had. Should we have politicians in the film? Because, you know, I love Michael Moore films. Mm. And I, lo- I mean, he's my favorite documentary filmmaker. And when I look at his films, I see community, but I also see policymakers and I see different players. And I thought, this is perhaps what we need. We need to get um, some type of expert who knows about environmental contaminants. We need to get a politician. And these were the discussions we were having early on. And we decided not to as a group. I guess it was Ellen said to me, I really want to focus on the voices of these communities. And if we start to include all these different people, then the community voice is going to be drowned out. Right. So I realized that she was right. We have 70 minutes. And how do we get to the stories of these three communities in a way that doesn't distract from their message? So that is a decision that we all came to eventually. And also, I think in addition to that, so that's keeping the spirit of of my project and my book intact, because obviously my project and my book is about community voice, community-based work. The other thing that I took into account was that Ellen is a Nova Scotian. She has an intimate connection with her province. She grew up here. That was actually really important. That made it special because she could have been somebody from California with an interest in this topic, but having no real connection to place. So in many ways, I felt I can trust the process because we had a Nova Scotian born and bred comes back here every now and then, is connected to the place, is also connected to Shelburne, which is one of the communities featured in the film right. through family, and has, although struggles with it, I think, has a deep love for her province. I think she's been in conflict with that for a while. You know, I'm not quite sure why, but I get a sense that she has conflicting feelings about Nova Scotia, but I do believe she has a love for her province. Right. And that made me feel that we were going to be okay. Mm-hmm. That she was going to stay true to the book in some ways, that her passion for this project was authentic and that she was coming from the right place. Right. I really do like how the documentary started off with you describing what is environmental racism. And then I don't remember the exact kind of sequence, but there was also a part where she does talk about why this is important to her. And I think that really helped set sort of like the genuineness of why she cares about it. Mm -hmm. And that's so important because like you said, she has a huge following. And if she is doing her part in representing the people that she cares about, it gives so much more power to the movement Mm -hmm. in a sense. So I really did appreciate that because sometimes I think celebrities can come off as disingenuine when they're working on such projects. Mm-hmm. So I appreciated that it wasn't overinflated. So one of the, the shocking moments in that documentary was when Louise was driving around the neighborhood and kind of pointing to each and every house saying how they had the members of the family to that household. Either they had lost one person or the entire family as a result of cancer. and. I was just completely (laughs) overflowed with emotions. I was sad. I was angry. (laughs) 
And, you know, I think that's one thing that the documentary kind of helped further amplify what you had already described in your book. Are there any specific eye-opening moments or just moments of inflection that you got from the documentary in comparison to the book? Believe it or not, it was that part for me as well, because seeing it on the screen uh, brought up different emotions. When I first met Louise in December of 2015, I met her because I wanted to collaborate with her to address issues in uh, Shelburne. It was a new community for me in terms of environmental issues. And when we met in my office, she said to me, oh, are you saying, Ingrid, that that landfill in our community is the reason why so many of us in my community have cancer? You know, about 96% of us have cancer. When she said that, I thought, nah, that couldn't be. No, she's Hmm. probably just throwing out some figure. That doesn't make any sense. Like, I didn't believe her. I thought, that's not, you know, that's not possible. So it was a stunning statement at that time. But I have to say that when I saw it on film, I guess I didn't realize until I saw it on film with her driving down the street, how bad it it is. (laughs) Even though she told me, and although I documented it in the book, it had a completely different impact seeing it on film. So actually that was the most striking part because when I first saw the film at the Toronto International Film Festival, I remember gasping mm. as if I didn't even know that about that information. <laughs> and the people around me here in Halifax who've seen the film here in different venues and also at the Toronto International Film Festival, I also heard a gasp. People were shocked. Mm as I was. So for me, it's a compelling part of the film and surprised me just like it surprised everybody else. Yeah. When we showed it at TIFF, the part with our premiere at the end, when he said, we're going to close the mill. Yeah. So that wasn't in the version that we sent to the Toronto International Film Festival because that decision he made happened the week of Christmas of last year. So added that in for Netflix. So when I saw that version here at a showing that we had, I think it was the Black Film Festival, that also, I actually tear it up. And I'm not somebody who tears up easily. Mm. The ending the film with that made me tear up. Yeah. And I let out a kind of sigh when I saw it. I thought, wow. I just had the sense that, all the work that has been done by a lot of different people, but particularly by the communities, we had a, a really hopeful outcome Yeah, that it has all led to this. And I don't know if he saw the film. I don't know if our premier saw the film. I don't know if he's heard about it, but that ending was very impactful for me and I got teary eyed. <laughs> so, yeah, I think it's, at least from my memory, when I've watched documentaries about such injustices, it always ends inconclusive. And that, mm-hmm. yeah, you're completely right. The ending of the premiere acknowledging that there has been an injustice and that we're going to be putting our foot down and this company mm-hmm. is not going to get an extension. I was like, yes, this is what government is supposed to be. Yes. And in my heart, I was just, or in my mind, I was thinking, I, I really hope that day comes soon mm-hmm. in America, <laughs> where yes. we just have our leaders acknowledging the wrongs that have been done in the past and embracing it and saying, we are no more. We're just yes. going to make a change. 
but mm-hmm. we've got the change we were trying to create. But just from the little that I know about you, <laughs> there's still <laughs> a desire to make a greater impact. So what's next? Well, what has happened is it a week ago. So we got a great conclusion with Pictoulani First Nation, with Shelburne and Louise. The film doesn't indicate that, but Ellen is the one who is paying for the well. You know, so she talked about the well earlier on yes. in the film. And she's actually paying for the well. So that came out uh, early this year in February. So it was all over the Canadian media that Ellen has uh, offered to pay for that well. So that's a great outcome as well. And then just last week, or was it the week before, Doreen Bernard in the film, the grassroots grandmothers, they got a pretty great outcome. They appealed an environmental assessment that was approved by our former environment minister in 2019. The judge dismissed that decision by our environment minister and said that the community of Sabanagadi, they need to be consulted properly. So our former environment minister said, oh, they were consulted properly. We don't need to go back to the table to consult with them. Mm. But the judge handed down a decision a week ago, a week and a half ago, saying, nope, that minister of environment was incorrect. We need to consult properly with this community. So this is huge. Yeah. So they are certainly right now rejoicing because it means that now government has to go back to the table and consult with them properly for the first time ever. So I remember we were at the showing of the film and members of that community said, oh, we're so happy, you know, with what's happened with Peak 2 Landing First Nation. We're so happy with what's happened with Louise and Shelburne, but we're still waiting for something great to happen. And I felt like, oh gosh, I really wish something great would happen for them. And then, what, two weeks later, this Mm. decision came down. So I'm hoping that they feel inspired by that. Yeah. What's next for me is I would say that while these are great things that have happened, that doesn't mean that these communities don't still have to deal with the health impacts. Right. In Shelburne, they still have cancer because of the landfill and the landfill has been closed, but that doesn't mean that cancer goes away. So I am waiting to hear about a grant that I put in earlier this year with uh, professors in uh, Ontario and other individuals, we have a team and we want to, and a professor here at Dalhousie, we have uh, a team that is going to look at cancer in Shelburne. We want to look at the causal factors. So we're going to look at lifestyle factors, diet, smoking. We're also going to look at environmental degradation, so the landfill. Mm-hmm. And we're also going to look at the social determinants of health, income, poverty, gender, race, and culture. And we're going to look at those strands to kind of determine what are the causal factors for such high rates of cancer in Shelburne, where almost everybody has had cancer, currently dealing with cancer. Yeah. So I really think this is important because that has yet to be done. And as you know, we need evidence, you know, the politicians and everybody, they want to know that you have evidence. So this is the first time that this type of data will be collected. So that is my next project, hopefully. Right. I just remember in the the documentary when Louise was talking about how wells have been contaminated and she, I don't know if it was her or just in the general message that I got from that particular scene of the documentary where what I understood it was that there was a direct connection or there was some connection between the contamination in the groundwater as a result of the landfill, which could be causing the high cancer rates in Shelburne. Is that conclusive or is that 
exactly what you're trying to do with your next grant? It's probable. Yeah. It's highly probable. So one of the things that somebody said to me early on when I started my project was, Ingrid, you should never say that a particular pollutant caused a particular disease, mm -hmm. that this landfill is responsible for the cancer. What you can say, particularly if that landfill is one kilometer away from the community, which is the case, I believe in Shelburne, and certainly the case in the African Nova Scotian community of Lincolnville, which is not featured in this film, you can say it's highly probable. Right. So we did do testing. We found contaminants in the well. Now, the issue is, is that you could no longer have contaminants now, but you would have had contaminants in the past, let's say in the 1940s and 1950s. Right. So the people who are currently dealing with cancer, that might be a result of the contaminants in the past, right? But things change all the time, right? So we can say that perhaps, yes, it's highly probable that the high cancer rates of, is about what has happened currently and in the past. But you also have to be very careful about being conclusive. Right. Certainly, Louise believes that it is. She is convinced that it is connected. Yeah. As a researcher, I have to stand back and say that it's not conclusive, but for me, I think it's highly probable. Yeah. And thus, there's something in the water. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's very subtle. Yes. But I think for me, I also need to be careful. I think it's also why I side with Louise on this is because we've seen it happen here in the U.S. And there are movies made about this as well. There's the civil action in Dark Waters. And yes. this whole issue around non-point source pollution has been contentious for decades. But I think now it's, as you said, we've gathered more information and data. And so we have a better idea of being able to track back the contaminants to a particular source. And it's been difficult, but it's always going to be something that can be contended against. So I, I really hope that you do get this grant and it kind of gives a conclusion to what we believe is for the most part true. Yes. <laughs> and that could be the continuation of your next book. And the title could be, We Know What's in the Water. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> Actually, people have asked me, are you going to do another book? And many times I say to people, I said, I don't know what else to say. Of course, things change, but I feel like I kind of said everything in this book. I talked yeah. about spatial violence. Like I, I'm struggling in terms of what else I can say, but you are right. There's obviously more to say. So perhaps yes. I will do another book. Yes. And I think also just going back to what you said earlier is that just because the landfill is gone, just because the pulp factory is gone, doesn't mean that the impact yes. and the trauma immediately yes. goes, you know, with the Mi'kmaq community, they are struggling with how they were betrayed and yes. with the pollution of one of their sacred sites. It's, how do you deal with that? And then with the, the Alton gas trying to dump contaminants into a sacred river, that kind of stress on that community while they were fighting for their sacred river, it'll stay with that current generation and generations to follow. Exactly. So there's definitely, I think, more to talk about and I look forward to it. 
So we'll move into the the lightning round of our interview here or conversation rather. I don't like to use the word interview. <laughs> so the first question here is what have you read, heard or watched lately that has influenced you the most? And you can say the documentary as well. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the documentary is really key. I wouldn't say it's necessarily influenced me or changed anything because it is yeah. kind of, it's based on my book. But I would say that I talked earlier with you about spatial analysis and it wasn't something that I knew about early on. And I think that's changed the way I look at things. Mm-hmm. And that it now allows me to think of all kind of social justice issues within that framework. But I also think it's an important way to articulate environmental racism and its connectedness with other issues. So I would say that the article by Dr. George Lipschitz at the Black Studies Department at the University of California, Santa Barbara, I am extremely grateful that I read that article called The Spatialization of Race. Yes. Because once I read that, it opened up my world. I was very much confined in a kind of myopic focus on environmental issues and pollutants and contaminants. And as a sociologist, which is what I am, I'm not an environmental scientist, I think that spatial analysis allowed me to connect environmental racism to so many sociological issues. And that ended up being the fav- my favorite chapter in my book. And a lot of people have talked to me about my spatial analysis. Students have said, oh, I really like that chapter. So I would say more than anything else, that analysis has been key for me. Yeah. I would agree. I was just going to say that's one of my favorite chapters in your book. And that's chapter three. But in specific, I love the discussion around page 56, where you start talking about the distinction between the symbolic meaning of space and the materiality yeah. of space. Yeah. That I was like, yeah. what? And that's so important for planners to know about. Mm-hmm. Planners are responsible for, you know, environmental people, environmental departments as well. But planners are the ones who make a decision about where things go. Right. And people don't just make that randomly. It's symbolic. The space, the, the whole idea of symbolic is that we have ideas about people in our minds, who is worthy and who's not worthy and who has value and who doesn't have value. So if you decide not to put something in a rural community, maybe it has something to do with the fact that you think they're not as important as urban communities. So right. the symbolic nature of space and the materiality of space is so intertwined because our imagination, what's in our imagination actually leads to the practice of putting something in a particular place and space. And there are people who are responsible for doing that. And they need to be, I would say, retrained in many ways in terms of the subtle ways in which they actually enable inequality. And it's not purposeful. Right. People just do what they know, but they also do things that are connected to how they feel about people. Right. Yeah, exactly. And gentrification is one of the best examples of that. But yes. there's so many great things to discuss in this book. I wanted to talk to you about decolonization as well, but maybe we can leave that for another time. Okay. So the next question is, what's a personal habit that has helped you significantly in your work? And maybe not personal, but just even a professional like habit that has helped you? You know what I would say? I would say persistence. Yeah. I would say that... It sounds so boring, but this is the kind of character trait that people have 
said to me about myself, whether it's a boss in a job that I've had, they talk about, and I used to think it was boring. I wanted them to say something much more exciting about me. They would say, Ingrid, you're dependable, you're reliable, you're persistent. And I used to roll my eyes and think, ah, so boring. And now (laughs) I think it's the most important quality to have around just anything, but also around this particular issue. I could have given up. You know, there were points where I saw nothing changing. I was at this kind of plateau and I was like, okay, what do I need to do now? What direction do I need to go in? And I have been persistent at times where it was extremely difficult. And uh, two weeks ago, I was announcing through email, my email list of subscribers, I was announcing the Netflix debut. And one of my close friends got back to me and she said, fantastic, Ingrid. My father passed away a few years ago. And she said, your father is is looking down on you and he must be so proud. Thank you for your persistence. And there's that word again, Mm -hmm. persistence. And I realized that the outcomes of this project and whatever success it's had or failures, regardless, I have been persistent. I, it feels like it's a puzzle that I need to solve. And I think that's what's kept me kind of intrigued and dedicated is I feel like I have to solve some kind of problem, which is probably not the right way to think about it, but I wanted to crack something. And I wasn't satisfied until I cracked it, until I solved that problem, that missing piece of the puzzle. So my, I would say the best, I guess, in terms of my habit, commitment, dedication, persistence in terms of seeing things through would be a habit, a trait, character trait that has been important for this particular topic. Mm -hmm. And it's just so fundamental for the type of work that we do is nothing changes overnight. It takes decades. So got to be very patient and persistent. Oh, yes. What's the best piece of advice you've received? To always maintain integrity. You know, I think we all are challenged around that. We're all good people, but sometimes you're chasing after certain things that you think might make you happy in life. You're chasing after goals. And sometimes when you're chasing after things that you think will make you happier, you can compromise integrity. And yeah, early on, I forgot who it was, probably my parents as well. They've emphasized the importance of maintaining integrity. And I really think that's important. I talked about that a little bit early on in terms of I can't look at myself in the mirror if I went into these communities and just took from them and never came back. So I think it's crucial when you're doing work with marginalized communities that you maintain integrity and particularly because I'm also a person of color going into communities that are minoritized in a way I reflect them and they reflect me. And the broader world is looking at us through their stigmatizing lens, through their discriminatory lens. So as a Black woman, there are higher expectations placed upon me by the outside world, by white people in a a way. And it's not that I'm doing it for them, but I also know how we are viewed and how I am viewed as a Black scholar. And having integrity is important. So I need to look at myself in the mirror and I need to be happy with what I see. People are looking at me as well from the outside world and the communities I work with are looking at me. Mm -hmm. So that's something that I have to remember all the time that putting community first, making sure that their priorities come first at all times and making sure that I'm 
collaborating with them fully. And that is not about me. It's about them. It's about using the resources that I have that maybe they don't have. You know, it's a grant that I have. So that's financial resources that I have. It's perhaps the networks of professionals and environmental scientists who can test their water. I have those connections. So everything that I do has to be about the community. And for me, that's having integrity with respect to this project, but just having integrity in general. Mm -hmm. That's a good one. What is your superpower? I think I have a particular talent. I don't know where it came from in kind of connecting the dots. I see things very broadly. I see them in very detailed ways, but I know how to put things together with respect to this project. I know what partners need to be on board. Mm. I know how to connect other people with each other. I can identify very quickly the talents and skills and resources that people bring to the table. And I know how I'm a connector. I know how to connect people so that when they work together, they're working on something that's different or that's unique. I seem to have a particular skill in knowledge mobilization, which, which in academia is about how to share knowledge. Somebody said that to me. Another professor said that to me. Maybe about five years ago, she seemed to recognize that in me. I didn't recognize it at the time. I was doing my project on gentrification and she said, Ingrid, you know, you seem to be really good at knowledge mobilization. And I was like, well, is that the only thing? And now it's funny. It's like with the film, with the, the maps that I've created, with the attention in the media, with just different things that I've done that are creative, that, that's using kind of multimedia, I kind of recognize that, yeah, I seem to have that skill as well. So I would say my superpower is looking at the big picture and knowing how to distill it into parts, knowing how to bring people together and knowing how to make use of different mediums or different media in order to bring attention to an issue and knowing how to share it in creative ways and getting people to talk about the issue is perhaps a skill that I've noticed over the past few years. Mm, those are quite some fundamental skills. You should think of a name yeah, for your superpower and yeah. make that your Twitter tag. <laughs> and making people care about it, yeah. right? I am, not, I am not undermining statistics. I'm definitely mm. not. I don't want anybody to think that, but I think ultimately... People have to ask the question, okay, why has this project gotten this type of attention? Why is Ellen Page attracted to it? Because there's a social impact that it has. Because the broader community beyond the environmental scientists and the sociologists and the broader community cares about the issue. And I think for researchers, for academics, and not everyone, because not everybody's interested in what I'm doing or having the outcomes that I've had. Not every academic wants that. But I'm saying... In order to reach the broader public and to make people care about the issue that you're researching, you've got to find a way to make it relatable. Right. Not just to the people in your discipline. You know, I, I don't want that. I don't want just sociologists caring about what I do. I want the broader public right. to care and I want it to have a broader impact. So I think because that's my goal, I've done things in a particular way. I've engaged partners and brought them together and used multimedia in a particular way because I care about the issue beyond the sociology discipline. I care about it beyond the environmental science discipline. I want the broader public to care. Right. So my goal is how do I make them care? So I think for any researcher and academic who is interested in what I'm doing and wants the same type of outcome, 
how do you go beyond your discipline and make your project relatable so that other people care? Right. Not, not just you. Yeah. And I think you bring up a good point. I think that should be the basis of all research. How can you get people point. to care? You know, I don't know every academic thinks that way. I don't want to force my yeah. view on people, but the publisher of my book, the, the man who owns the publishing company, he said that to me. He said, Ingrid, every single academic should be making sure that what they're doing is relatable to the broader public. I said, well, really? Do you really think so? I think a historian would probably say, no, I don't want to do community-based research. I'm, I'm a historian, so I don't see why I should do that. He said, even a historian, Ingrid. Yeah. I think a historian should do community-based work, you know? So yeah, you're, you're probably right. Yeah, especially because you're telling other people's stories. They're not necessarily facts. So True. yeah, that's a really good point you made there. All right, so we've come to the end of our conversation here and we definitely want to keep following you and learning from your experiences. So how can we do so? The best way is through my website for the Enriched Project. It's called the Environmental Noxiousness, Racial Inequities and Community Health Project. And it's www.enrichproject.org. And through that website, you will find the Twitter page and the Facebook page. Yeah, that's the best way to keep up to date with my work. I'm also on Instagram as well. Okay. And is there anything else you would like to add? Well, I would just say that it would be great if people could look at the um, Netflix documentary. I feel that it was really well done. Mm -hmm. And one of my hopes is that this documentary in some way builds solidarity among people in different countries around the world around this particular issue. I mean, it could be symbolic, you know, it could be a connectedness that's spiritual, but I'm hoping it incites something in people to want to do something. Yeah. People have been emailing me asking me, what can I do now? You know, and I connect them to the people on the ground in those communities, which I, I think is the best way to kind of do something is to connect directly with members of the community. They're always putting out various calls and telling people what they can do at any given time. So I would say if you want connections to those communities, reach out to me through the Enriched Project website. And I can connect you to those communities. So what I'm hoping is that the film inspires people to actually do something in their own small way in their communities. If you're looking to help people in Nova Scotia and help the Indigenous and Black communities here, please connect with me and I can put you in touch with them directly. Mm -hmm. Something that you said made me also think about how if somebody wants to help, one of the first things they should do is really educate themselves about the specific issue and... If there are nonprofits or other entities, research entities, universities that are working on those specific issues to really understand what their agenda is and see if you want to be a part of that. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah. All right. This concludes our conversation. Thank you again so much for sharing your insights and for making time. I know it's a busy time for you, especially with the Netflix documentary out. March 27th. I'm definitely going to be watching it again because I feel oh, there's some I... details that I missed. And I'm also going to be reading over other sections of your book again because I feel like there's great detail that I'm not sure I fully grasped just in one round of the read. Ah, fabulous. Yeah. And I look forward to the next one. <laughs> okay. Now I have the pressure. Yeah. <laughs> 
Hey all, thanks for listening to Breaking Green Ceilings. If you'd like to hear more episodes with change-making environmentalists, head on over to watersavvysolutions.com backslash podcast. You can find me online on Instagram and Twitter. And as always, if you love the show, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and like on iTunes. You can also sign up for my newsletter to find out when new episodes are available. And please do share the podcast with your family, friends, colleagues, and whoever you think will be inspired by the wisdom of our change makers. I always welcome feedback, so please do feel free to reach out to me. My contact information is also on watersavvysolutions.com. Until next time, keep breaking through those green ceilings.